Hello and welcome to this week's Stats Bomb Podcast with me, James York, and... Maybe we should say this year's Stats Bomb Podcast. It's just habit now, Ted, I say this week's. You don't want to break it up, it's got to be the same sort of thing all the time. I did think about it, I was saying it, should I change it? But last time I said that, I said this week's, people are, oh, it's every week now. And I thought, I'm just going to stick to it, it just is what it is. <laughs> welcome to the deeply confusing Stats Bomb Podcast, which is mostly disappearing, but occasionally not. So why are, why are we back today? Well, the Euros is coming up, so it's a Euro special, isn't it, Ted? Uh, I didn't prep for a Euro special. <laughs> no, not me. Everyone will do Euro stuff. Everyone in the world will do Euro stuff. No one wants to hear about Euro stuff. Just watch the games and enjoy it. I'm not allowed to talk about Euros because we have multiple customers in it. <laughs> I say that about any league. So I think I could repeat my joke from last time, the Hawaiian Fifth League analysis coming up. We haven't quite nailed them down yet, but... No, we are going to talk about, because the interesting things have happened in the world of uh, football recently that Ted feels passionate about. I think that's the best way of mentioning it. You, um, you've managed to those put, things... anything goes wrong, it's now my fault, huh? <laughs> what are the things that, you, that you, you were particularly enamored by in recent football history? It was mostly that we had good stories. Um, and obviously, one of those stories is around Thomas Tuchel, um, who have kind of a long history from afar with him like it is like a second order history with Tuchel and and fun stories there and then uh there was a team in West London a different team uh not the Thomas Tuchel team but a team that uh, wears red and white stripes that managed to finally get promoted to the Premier League and I thought that it would be fun to talk about that story because it took longer than expected but they finally made it did it? Did it take longer than expected? Because I think they've done pretty well, really. It's not hard. It's, sorry, it's not easy getting out of that league. Are we, are we talk, when you say longer, do you mean like plus one year after the playoff misery, or do you mean just you know they could have hoped to get up sooner? I think that they were probably. I mean, we would have expected to go up in like two to three years, but I'll explain like the re- rebuild process. I think it took a couple years longer than than was hoped um and possibly then even their their sort of metrics deserved they they should have gone up last year as well they were definitely over the course of a season a better team than um fulham but obviously the playoffs are the playoffs so yeah no that's interesting i can take i've done a wee bit of metrics research in in this so i'll talk about that quickly because that's what i can do <laughs> but yeah you're right the last two seasons brentford have been the second best team in the championship via expected goals and both times they, that's been powered mainly by having a really good defence. Yeah. Um, they perked up. They, they had the ninth best expected goals in 2018-19, and they were um, taking 15 shots, giving up 11, 1.3 to 1.2 expected goals per game. Last two seasons, the shots on the um, the opposite end have gone down to like nine and then eight. Uh, shots on the front end have gone down uh, 14-13, so they're plus kind of five shots per game. But both last season this season, 1.3 expected goals for 0.8 against. And that 0.8 against was a second only to Leeds. Leeds had an excellent defence. No one will believe this after Leeds have been hugely entertaining uh, in this year's uh, Premier League. But yeah, Leeds' um, Leeds's defence was extremely good uh, in the Championship uh, season before they came up. And was one of the things that meant you could project them relatively positively, which is interesting about Brentford because you could make a case that their solid defence uh, puts them in good stead going up. Uh, and they actually had the best uh, defence for expected goals this season. Um, and, yeah, not you know, it's not just the shot volumes come down, but the shot quality against. And this is something we'll come back to again when we talk about Tuchel later. The shot quality against has, has you know, significantly improved uh, across the last two seasons. They're just good. And they replaced, you know, they had their big problems to solve uh, this last year in replacing Watkins and Benrama. And they did that. And they didn't miss a beat. Yeah, That's impressive didn't, too. didn't miss a beat. Uh, poor, poor Matt Benham. Like, but <laughs> Brentford up to this point, I think we're 0 for 9 in making it out of playoffs with a promotion, <laughs> and, really? and including some spectacular heartbreaks. <laughs> and uh, and you know, given that they were basically the second best team um, in the league the last two years, like felt pretty strongly they should have had at least one automatic promotion out of those two, <laughs> and and obviously had the the insanity of last year's playoff loss to arch rivals Fulham on like the goofiness of Raya's sort of positioning and that Joe Bryan free kick from, from afar. And then, 
yeah, then the the attack. Uh, and then what was it? Yeah, it, it nearly happened again, didn't it? I can't remember which which one of the playoff games and he conceded with inside a minute or something, some silly goal. I watched it. That was was it Bournemouth? Yeah, and then Bournemouth basically they, sat back the whole time, and I think they had someone sent off, and then it was then it changed. Really, that, got, that changed things, Ted. Yeah, <laughs> ten, v, ten v eleven. Suddenly, well, and, and, <laughs> in all the, powers of the eleven. In the first game of of that playoff, uh, Buemo missed a penalty, right? Or like seventy six percent chance shot. I'm pretty sure it was a pen that that <laughs> didn't go in. So, yeah, uh, and then Chris Maffam, who used to play for Brentford and came out of the academy, is like one of the few players to come out of the the now extinct uh, <laughs> academy. <laughs> Uh, was the player that got sent off for Bournemouth. But. That was it. Rogue b is all coming back. It's all flooding back to me. It's two weeks a long time in this world nowadays, but like, or three weeks, however long it is. Yeah, rugby tackle. He definitely ankle-tapped him. He had to go. But yeah, that, <laughs> that, that really swung, swung that time. It always yeah, makes me was... laugh when you break into like the old English commentator. <laughs> he for... had to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the current journey, but like, there's a long journey behind this. And... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and talk, and if there's noise behind me, I, I apologize because we have some people doing um, some cabinet work in the house. But um, what I want to do is kind of talk about the whole process behind this, and there's like so many stories, and like, some of these things I can I can tell on some of these things better off untold, but um, we'll get to, to, I guess, Chelsea and Tuchel in the, in the second half because we've got some cool stories around them too. Um, so back in 1415, I, I joined in the summer of uh, 2014. Uh, Brentford and I was brought in by Matthew Benham um, and then like at, at the time the club was run by uh, Frank McParlin as director of football and Mark Warburton uh, was the the manager or head coach <clears throat> and they had taken over I think mid-season the season before um, and you know helped get them out of league one um, so they were, they were like, oh, I was so ignorant and there's so much stuff going on at the time that I had no knowledge about and obviously sort of walked into this hilariously. Um, so that initial set of recruitment was like quite interesting, right? They, they picked up Moses Odebaju, uh, who was a, a solid right back, ended up having some knee injury problems. Scott Hogan also like ended up being a very good goal scorer and, and was sold on for like 12 million or something. Maybe it was nine and a half plus a clause to uh, Aston Villa later. Andre Gray out of Luton, who, you know, scored like 30 goals in, in the conference and then ended up playing in the Premier League for Watford. Uh, John Terrell on loan, Alex Pritchard on loan, who ended up being like one of the players of the season and looked like he had a huge future ahead of him. Uh, and Hoto Pelletiero, who, uh, our, Ricky Larendart, who I used to work with, he was the one who signed up, found Hota and, uh, and Marcos Tebar uh, in, in Spain. And Hota ended up being like a huge huge player for for Brentford from out wide um and then there were like these other ones so so like Alan Judge got picked up you know sort of unfancied ended up being you know quite a good player for for Brentford and then there's like a couple of names that are in this list that we didn't know much about <laughs> to be honest and I've kind of told this story before um so Will Grigg was uh was I think he went on loan and he ended up being sold because uh, he had quite a good season at Wigan I think or maybe it was Maybe it was the other way around. Uh, anyway, he ended up having a good season, and then he ended up getting bought by Sunderland at some point, and Will Grigg had his own anthem, etc. So, But this early, this first season, none of the recruitment was really done by me. It was Ricky and, and really Frank's group, and uh, you know Matthew brought me in to start working on this thing, but you don't start like running, and especially at that time. You know, we had to build like all of the infrastructure. Uh, we, it took us months to get the data deal agreed with Opta. <laughs> so, so in the early stages, you're like scouring Instat data to like you know find guys that are interesting to scout, and you're doing it for, across both clubs. So Brentford and Michelin. Uh, Michelin made the Champions League group stage as well. It's it's so absurd for me. Are there any companies out there? It doesn't take months to get a deal with Ted. Uh, it, ours <laughs> takes. <laughs> Sometimes a day. <laughs> Most, and it's not there usually any, not our fault. Are there any quality products in this area that we could recommend? Thanks, James. Uh, we're trying to keep this, you know, not not a salesy podcast. But um, hey, I, I, I did a video earlier this week. Check it out if you haven't. Uh, exploring our IQ IQ uh, tools, uh, which is it's out there online. 
I did the voiceover. I can't take the credit. But this stuff like didn't all, all exist. Good. So the, it didn't exist <laughs> no, no. before. And and people don't understand like when when you start early on and you're first mover, like you you got nothing. <laughs> and 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 not only do you have nothing, but like you couldn't shop from like the big leagues. Like this is Brentford. So anyway, the point around all this is that you know Frank's group and, and Warbs actually had a bunch of guys that they brought in that that see that summer before I came along that were were quite good. Chris Long looked like a future sort of pretty good uh, striker as well. Um, and then so they had success and they 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 were doing quite well and I think they were second at the the Christmas time uh, period. Uh, but they also knew that they were they were a little thin uh, up front and. <clears throat> We were. I was asked at that point. That was the first time that I could start to contribute to stuff, uh, especially on the Brentford side. I'd been working a little bit on Michelin side. Like, hey, give us a couple of names that look really interesting that we could bring in as a forward because Andre's playing a lot of minutes, and you know, toward the end of the season, we want to make sure that we're fresh. Like the only other uh, forwards that we have are Tommy Smith, who is not young at the time, and uh, and and Chris Long, who was 19. So you had like a 30 some odd year old and then a 19 year old. So like this was even useful for the future. So the two names that we we kind of gone through the whole scouting process and really liked uh, were Jonathan Kogia, who ended up being quite a good player. Uh, he went to Bristol, I believe, uh, and then eventually Aston Villa. <clears throat> and then uh, Florian Niederlechner, who ended up having a very good career uh, in the Bundesliga, but was totally unfancied and almost completely unknown. I think we found him at Heidenheim, and then he eventually went on to Freiburg. Uh, I'm pretty sure that all those are true. And and Niederlechner scored regularly at the Bundesliga level, which says that clearly we, we were right. Um, so these guys were like, you know, two to two million pounds, some 2.5 maybe. Like th- that was that was always the maximum that we could spend in that first year. Uh, and they didn't get brought in and we ended up getting knocked out in the playoffs painfully to <sighs> Middlesbrough. God, I hated playing Middlesbrough. So, um, and that was I took Renka and, and they ended up going up. So fair enough. But then this next summer comes along. <clears throat> And this next number is like huge transition. So, uh, you know, the stuff between Matthew and, and Warbs goes down in like February and there's unhappiness around, you know, who controls what. And one of Matthew's unhappiness, elements of unhappiness were that he offered to bring in uh, Gianni Vio at the beginning of the 2014 season to help out with set pieces because he knew that that was a weakness that they had the year before. And and Warbs and, and, and his group did, yeah, they didn't want any interest in it. Uh, they basically said, oh, well, we didn't have enough time to work on set pieces last season, so just leave us alone and we'll take care of it this season. And then they didn't really improve at all in set pieces, so you ended up finishing, I think, third bottom in the league. So Not enough time for set pieces, Ted. This seems, this is heresy. <laughs> well, alongside of this, Mitchell and were winning the league for the first time in their history off of the back of scoring three goals in every four games off of set pieces. So, <laughs> you know, it's... It's funny though, isn't it? Because like you know, this let's not pretend is reinventing the wheel or anything. You know, set pieces have been variously important for teams, you know, for decades or whatever. But nevertheless, like we're we're definitely seeing like in conversations we have uh, now, more and more clubs thinking like actually, you know, could we get set piece specifics, but set piece kind of assistance and you know the work, some of the work you've done as well, um, you know, speaks to that. But you just those conversations have been had more and more now, I think. And it's interesting because it's taken a bit of time to kind of, for people to kind of come round again and think like, yeah, no, we, we can do more there. I mean, there's always been, like I said, I'm not going to say that there aren't teams out there that have always done work with it, but yeah, it's slowly but surely getting through again. And I think more and more people are taking it seriously and realizing, especially when you're, especially when you're looking for, you know, you maybe you're a lesser team and you're looking for an edge or classic, you know, the situation where you've got a knockout tournament and you need some secret weapons. <laughs> You know, well, I, I I can't comment on that. I'm just hoping that Euros is delightfully weird. You've liked the boys um, talking a little bit about Euros and that stuff, and and that was interesting. Oh yeah, no, it, that was really good. Yeah, sorry. Um, it was in there was a t- my, my my mother who buys the Times for his crosswords. <laughs> gave gave me a gave me a, a Euros preview. I, I, I think that's the first time that your mother has made an appearance on this show, James. <laughs> may, maybe maybe not. But yeah, he was talking all about set pieces, about um, how people you know set things up. Um, you know how many players they have in position to receive a pass. They might have multiple routines. Uh, you know, deliver, consistent delivery. And then he talks about throw-ins as well, about how things have evolved. Um, so much work is being 
done on throw-ins to retain position and make tactical moves. Teams are checking the stats, he says. What's the retention rate in throw-ins, the opposition retention rate? I just thought it was great because obviously, you know, Moyes, Premier League manager, done really well this season. You know, he's a real a football man. I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, but, you know, knows his football. And he's, he's, he's keeping up with, um, you know, changes and the way things are evolving uh, very much so and you know maybe a part of that's why he's been successful this this last season he's you know he's he's looking in under every stone so yeah and uh, you know I I think the the throwing stuff is is probably more of a, a groundbreaker than the other bits um, yeah so we go into to the the 2015 summer uh, and basically we're kind of overseeing the club and there's a lot of there's a lot of hmm Sorry about that. There's there's a lot of drilling and, and sawing in the background, but there's a lot of ignorance at this time. Like we're we're not very seasoned. We don't know much about what's going on, and we have to again pick everything up from scratch. Like we have no scouting network. We have no anything. This was this was wild. They never do this, <laughs> but but we had to because of the turnover of the club. And I suspect that you know in a lot of cases that is what happens elsewhere. You just don't necessarily know about it. So. If you look at the, you know, go on transfer market and you look at the 15, 16 season and like all the inbounds. So Andres Bieland was one of our, our top guys at center back. We were really excited that we were able to get him. Um, and then Josh McEachern actually was one of our, our most exciting signings uh, at center midfield. Uh, he had been on loan at Vitesse and, and played a really good sort of holding midfielder role and was better defensively than anybody actually realized. And we needed that type of passing and Josh was pretty flexible around that. So those two we were really excited by. They had injuries, long-term injuries, before they even played like a league game for us, and and obviously that really sucked because those were were two sort of key points for us. But we had to bring in like eleven people <laughs> because there was so much, um, you know, so many outbounds that we knew were likely to happen, and also like plenty of age that we needed to replace. You know, Tamani, we felt like he couldn't run that well uh, anymore. Moses had a clause that he could go to, <clears throat> he could go if somebody paid for. Uh, his, his clause and then there was like a bidding auction around it and so he ended up going to to Steve Bruce up at Hull who did quite well with him um, we knew we were probably going to have to sell Andre you know he'd done very well the year before um, he ended up going to Burnley Stuart Dallas uh, you know ended up being sold well Greg ended up being sold so like yeah I mean, there's uh, some of these guys you know were, were on freeze as well Tony Greg who was a center back um, and had had some injury problems etc <laughs> we also had two guys that, that came back from center back that were on loan that we had no information about like no one was keeping track of uh, no one in, in McParlin slash Warbs group was keeping track of their their progress in any sort of written format. So like when they left, they didn't give us any information. And you're like, okay, so there's this kid named Alfie Mawson uh, at center back. Uh, anybody have anything? Like his brother, I think, would or you know, his agent would like to know what we're planning to do with him. <laughs> like, I have no knowledge of this. And uh, and Jack O'Connell, his brother would like to know like what's going to go on because he just came back from London. And you're like, hmm. Yep, don't really know much about Jack either. Um, you know, can can we get back to them on that? So anyway, these two center backs and ended up playing in the Premier League as well later. <laughs> but uh, it's it kind of tells you the chaos. Now on the buying side, <clears throat> um, you know, I, I told you about Bieland and Josh and and those. You know, Bieland, we were looking for a left-footed guy that could really open play at center back and was good enough to play in the championship, and he certainly was. And I think he did fine after he recovered from an extreme injury. Uh, we need to replace Moses. Um, we had looked at Tavernier, who ended up going to Rangers. Uh, we didn't get him. Um, Maxime Collant, we were quite excited by, but like he was like our, our ninth right back. I mean, we bought him for a million euros. He ended up being sold for like 3.5 million or something like that a couple of years because he had a clause as well. Philip Hoffman's always the one that, you know, we paid two million pounds for this guy and he didn't work out. Um, he was a, a German U21 international in the second Bundesliga. That sounds really good. It was, you know, he had some, some great highlights. Um, I, I don't think that he liked football as much as you might expect. And I don't think he had kind of the aerial big man skills that you might hope, despite being like, you know, nearly two meters tall. Um, but the reason why we had to sign Philip, like, because we didn't have, we'd gone through maybe 10, 10, 15 uh, forwards that were on our list at various times and hoping that we could get the, the deal across the line. But we knew we had to sell Andre. Like we knew he was going to leave in the summer. The only other forward that we had that wasn't like academy level, uh, we actually didn't have they were gone and so uh, our our head coach who was marinus dykhausen was <laughs> in, in 11 v 11 training was playing forward you're like this is a huge problem and we need to do something 
So we bought Sturmtank and he didn't work out. Ryan Woods was a, a guy that we bought late in the window. We bought him for a million from, from Shrewsbury. I think he was a League Two player of the season, or not player of the season, but team of the season player. Um, later sold him on to Stoke for about six million, I think was total. Jan Barbe uh, ended up being sort of a, a very underrated performer, still playing in the league at QPR. Um, yeah, I thought that he, he'd be quite good. He was like, you know, he a solid contributor. Lasavibe was one that, that worked out great for us. He was a bit older than our age profile. But <clears throat> he'd done great up in Sweden and, you know, really fast and really clever guy. Um, Lassa ended up being you know, a tremendous performer. Uh, two guys out of, uh, out of Germany or, or Austria, Kirschbaumer was, a, we, we, we saw him as a pressing 10 and we kind of figured we'd be playing 4-2-3-1. Um, he didn't get the, the playing time or sort of the respect that his, his skills deserved, but his output when he was on the pitch for us was outstanding. Gogia ended up going back to, to Bundesliga 2 with, you know, having a, a pretty solid set of contributions there. Uh, so both of those guys were bought and then sold on for, you know, not insignificant profit as well. And then uh, we had two loans that came in quite late in the window. Um, one John Swift of the Chelsea U21s, kind of a funky sort of um, central midfield dribbler. We used him out wide as a, as a bit of a creator. Uh, he ended up going around to Reading. And then Sergi Canos was, um, yeah, that, was that was really, I think, Nikos. Uh, Nikos Overhul, who's at uh, Vancouver Whitecaps now, uh, director of recruitment there. He, we're like, all right, so Liverpool say that we can you know, find a player. Uh, and if, if they're left, you can probably loan him. And Nico's like, we really like this Kano's kid. He, I think he's, he's, he's pretty good. And initially we tried to buy him, I think, for like 500K in Liverpool. We're like, yeah, we're going to wait a little while. We don't want to you know, make that deal. But they didn't think that he was that valuable. He ended up um, being bought for, I think, 2.5 million uh, after a season with us by Norwich and then he hated it at Norwich and uh, I think Brentford's just sort of like picked it up at the, the same price and he he was one of the, the main contributors in the in the playoff final uh, the point of all this stuff and I'm going through it in detail because like it's you know obviously it's interesting to me but it there's a lot of good stuff in there and a lot of stuff that that was noisy and messy like you take on early injuries from from your players and you know like whose fault is that <laughs> it was not the recruitment groups but it you know it, it certainly can impact the the you know the <laughs> the effect that these players have and 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 their output um and you know two of the guys that we were most excited by they got injured early on nevertheless all of these guys are or the majority of them turned significant profits in in year one um I, I think we made a bunch of mistakes though and i think that it's it's interesting to kind of tuck into that and i know this is a bit monologue for those of you who don't like it uh, you know james wasn't there at the time i'm sorry james next time we get a club we'll do that he's on my yeah brentford on my team <laughs> it's true he, James can tell you about all the all the mistakes he's made with Spurs recruitment over the last few years. I, <laughs> I'm indifferent towards Brentford's uh, plight. They they are interesting though, and especially I think going forward, interesting. I was just thinking of Canos actually there because like he, he's it's funny because he's he's the he's the kind of like are there are other players that are still there because it's you know going back to your time there's a few years now and you know football moves pretty fast. Obviously Brentford, one of the things that comes out of what you're talking about there is how how much trading they do but how effective trading they've, they've done and Carlos is one that's still there he's only 24 that's crazy yeah so you know what I mean? when, when we grabbed Sergi he was 19 or 18 sorry he was 18 when, he, when we first learned him the people that were still there from um that we recruited and and I'll get to to some of the the legacy recruits that we had uh further on so Sergi was one um Rico Henry uh, we he was 18 years old and, and we were huge on Rico and, and also Dean Smith who who later joined was was high on that uh, high on him as well I think that's it um, which tells you I mean it's been five years since <laughs> since yeah yeah since I, mean, I was that's there. half a career isn't it for you know for most people so, so yeah, yeah both of those guys were recruited at, at very young ages and and they're still around but you know the the goal of our our, our goal was to you know help get into the the Premier League, which obviously was part of it, but in order to do that, you kind of had to build the bankroll. And you know, like I said, we we basically had a, a two million cap, two million pounds cap, which was tiny at the time, uh, even compared to to now. And it was like eight k a week plus like some bonuses that could be an extra, you know, two to two point five k a week or, or whatever on salary, which again was less than half of the average wage. So you're you're dealing with real constraints here, and you're just trying to to find guys that you think are, are quite good that can you know spike into being you know big sales, but also guys that can contribute now. You're not just waiting for them to 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 get better as they get older. Like you have to perform right now. Um, 
So that first year, uh, some of the mistakes that we made, initially we built the squad kind of backwards. We should have been finding cheaper all-stars in Europe and filling in with squad players from England for homegrown purposes. But as I said, we didn't have a scouting network. We didn't have anything. Um, and so we, we flipped that around and we learned our lesson in year one, but like that was a clear mistake. And, and as, as, as we started to pay more attention to homegrown, like that ended up mattering a little bit. Um, we had a hard time recruiting players with like obvious pace versus our budget. You know, anybody that's fast, like, is obviously fast, they cost more. <laughs> and, and so you're like, well, we would really like to have more pace on, on the wide areas. And, uh, and so that was hard to figure out. Um, I think the coach hires were something that, that Brentford struggled with and that, that was above my pay grade. Um, but I think they, they struggled to find optimal coaching talent for a long time in the style that we knew we wanted to play. I think that was particularly challenging and the process that they had for hiring coaches was not good. We didn't nail that down until basically about the time that I was ready to leave. Um, but then once we did that, we've had a pretty good process around hiring coaches and, and we get paid stats bomb terms. We get paid, you know, a, a few times a year to, to help teams hire the next coach and, and to fill in, you know, teams that understand what they're looking for. Like that's an area of expertise that, that we've done all right with. So, you know, that, that first one, Marinus got hired, he was immediately a disaster. He probably should have been fired in training camp. Like they knew that it was a mess. Um, but, you know, he stuck around for like eight or nine games. And then um, Lee Carsley came in and took over, like super defensive, but did quite well. Uh, but Lee didn't want to be head coach. Um, I think, you know, familial stuff was going on. And he uh, just, I think he's never decided to go the head coaching route, as far as I can tell. So, you know, that, that's him understanding himself. Uh, and then eventually Dean Smith was brought in um, December 1st of 2015. Dean was brought in from Walsall. Um, I, you know, Dean did fine, but one of our concerns about Dean's group was that they weren't particularly good defending. And as you can see, Brentford made it out of out of the league by having great defense those last two years. Um, and and Dean, Dean, you know, his his initial Aston Villa run, like he had the most expensive team in the world, uh, and they weren't great at defending. Um, they managed to get up, and and then you know, it seemed like the the pandemic sort of shook things up. They brought in, I think, Craig Shakespeare from who used to be at, at Leicester, and they seemed to solidify their defense a bunch. You know, coaches don't know everything, uh, and and sometimes they need help, and sometimes it's finding the right guys that you know they have a good rapport with in order to to guide that along. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, that, that's kind of like that first year, and that was chaos and <laughs> overwhelming. We had a lot of high-end targets. So another thing people won't realize is, or remember necessarily, unless you're a Bees fan, is that Brentford made the playoffs in 14-15, and we had to do like twice the amount of work for recruitment because we were looking for Premier League-level players and, and ones that we could afford on our budget, and we were looking for championship players at the same time. And, and it, um, you know, we, we had some really high-end targets that we wanted that ended up being very successful, especially out of Germany. Like Pascal Gross was our number one midfield target that we wanted to get. Uh, we, he went up with, I think, Ingolstadt, and we couldn't afford him. If we had gone up, we would have been able to afford him and pay his pay package. We had two center backs that we loved that end up, one of them ended up playing in the Champions League, Willie Orban. Uh, and Dominic Heinz, uh, the left-sided guy, he played for Kulm. I don't know where he's at now. I haven't paid much attention recently. <clears throat> so those those were happening kind of at that time. I, I want to talk a little bit about the next couple, of, or just like the next couple of windows, but quickly, because it, it tells you kind of how we learned and, and what we did next. So uh, Sergi was brought in in 1617. I think he, he was brought in uh, maybe even after we left. Um, Rico Henry, we brought in as a left back at age 19, and we felt that he could play left back for England given his age and his trajectory and also like how few great left backs there tend to be. Um, he had some injury issues, but he's been almost an ever-present and, and really important these last two seasons for them. Joseph Soon was a guy that, that we had flagged up as interesting, and I think Brentford got him on the cheap. Um, he was fine, but we didn't. when I was there, we didn't think we'd be able to bring him in. Uh, Romain Sawyers was a guy who brought in our free that was ours. I, I know, know people know that, that Dean knows him, but we did the whole the whole review on him. He ended up playing in the Premier League with West Brom. John Egan was ours. We found him. Um, I mean, obviously he was found, but he was uh, both Romain and, and Egan were frees. And I think Bentley had a, a fee that we had to pay, or you know, small small fees, um, basic tribunal fees because we got them when they were young, but. <clears throat> All those guys were like super exciting at the time, and and they were all homegrowns too. So we were, um, at least I think, remain as homegrown. Pretty sure. Uh, so yeah, we were able to to bring them in and, and solidify that, and those were ours. And then the next the next year, uh, 
it was they, they brought Makocho in, which I didn't like at that time because I thought that we kind of passed the Makocho window. Um, Ollie Watkins was a guy that everybody knew about and Brentford managed to seal that deal and that was fantastic. Uh, Mopai was another under the radar guy. Dalsgaard was brought in because they wanted a taller right back. <laughs> they, they didn't have as much height as they want. And then Marcondes, who I think also scored in the, the playoffs, um, was a free transfer from Norseland, great ball striker, and has had some injury issues and in, in, in and out, but you know his trajectory looked awesome too. So all of those guys, you know, we had some impacts on, on most of them, not Makonda's was not ours, Mopai was not ours, Ali we knew about, um, and Dalsgaard was, was Brasmus. But you can see us kind of get better. And all of the, the sort of second wave of guys that, that we brought in, all, or nearly all of them, except for Bentley, who I think had some problems with the yips, like they end up playing in the Premier League. And, and so we got better at it. We learned very quickly. And then the, the sales were awesome. Um, I, I don't know if, you've, if you know any of the stories behind the sales, but you know, it, they were at least as important as the buys. And, and no one will understand this unless they've kind of lived in the, in the football space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating, actually, what, how much of a like proving ground kind of Brentford is like, if, especially if you're, you know, if you're a player that like, you know, thinks how can I progress my career and Brentford are in for you now. And especially, I mean, the, the, one of the interesting things like looking forward is like how they adapt to being in the Premier League and how they adapt to, you know, the, they've got a clear strategy of how how they trade trade players. Maybe do they trade players this summer? Do they, what do they do with the Premier League coming? You know, how do they uh, expand or, you know, uh, keep themselves up? Um, but yeah, so many times players have just come in for like really cheap money and then moved on for you know multiples, significant multiples of that. And it's just time and time and time again. Every season, there's uh, you know a handful of players that go out to you know quote unquote better low better locations for big money, and it's just it's so consistent. What, one of the other things is interesting is is that they don't always succeed elsewhere. And, and so, like, sometimes they succeed, and, and those are the ones that people remember, but sometimes they just fall apart. Or Stuart Dallas, you know, we sold him back in, like, 15-16. He finally made it to the, the Premier League, um, you know, last year at Leeds, but I think he made it as a fullback. And, and he was, like, a, a wide attacker, and we were not impressed by his, his wide attacking enough to, to keep him around, especially because he was doing a lot of crossing, and that was not a style that, that we wanted to continue to do. Um, so we that first year, sorry again, the, the, the sawing's back. But that first year, uh, as I said, we we knew we would sell Andre, and and Matt and Phil were like really clever at putting in clauses that they thought would be reasonably likely to be activated. So you know, if if um, if Burnley went up, then they would have to pay an extra fee, and if they stayed up the second year in the Premier League, they would then have to pay another fee on top of that. So what was like a, a six point two five million pound transfer? ended up being you know closer to 11 or 12 based off of all the the clauses that were inside of that which is you know for for the buying club you're like oh yeah sure whatever but you know probabilistically if that happens enough times you know six million pounds is like three elite attackers for Brentford <laughs> that they hired you know down the road like Mopai and Buemo and and so like it ended up really mattering and same thing happened with Tarki so so Tarki agitated in the middle of the season was able to go to Brentford or sorry Burnley we knew that he was good. Like there was no question that he was really good. Um, it was just you know we weren't going to be able to keep him, and his his pay package was going to be tripled up north or something like that. So again, they, they put in similar sort of clauses. Um, the the next year, who did we have? Sorry, I'm I'm just trying to dig back through the sales side of it. Uh, oh yeah, so Scott Hogan goes to um, goes to Villa. And that was a bit like, you know, how does he play? Uh, can you play the style that, that makes sense for Scott? And, you know, I think Scott struggled with... He, he also had two ACL injuries, maybe maybe three, um, over time. And so you're like, okay, uh, if we can sell him, like, you should do so because it's a little bit dangerous. Uh, you know, if, if that falls apart, like, all of that money is gone. Um, and so, like, that's another thing about Brentford that, you know, they've been really careful about. Like, they have had injuries. Some guys haven't worked out. Like, uh, Lewis McLeod, I think, is playing at Plymouth Argyle. He looked like a, a, a star uh, to the original group at Brentford when he was coming out of the Rangers Academy. And, you know, he just never quite had enough health to, to continue onward. But the, the selling and the way that they've gone about it and the extra clauses that they've put in and the times they haven't sold. So, you know, they, there were times... I think the year before, like Ben Rama was definitely on people's radar and um, not Buemo, but 
you know, one or two of the oh, Ollie was obviously on people's radar. And so, but they knew that they had a good chance if they kept those guys for at least another year to be able to go up. And so that's what they did. So yeah, it's um, it's it's been a it's been extremely impressive, and, and you could see them learn, and you could see us learn over time, um, and get better at it. And you know, mistakes were made at, at different times. Uh, there was one that first year that I was there, uh, the playoff package or the the bonus was not for getting to the Premier League. There was also a smaller bonus for getting into the playoffs, and that did not have the same amount of money tied to it. And so that was like a very expensive mistake that, you know, again, you make that mistake once. <laughs> and, and that's also one reason why Brentford's sort of, you know, fees or, or, or money looks different. They also started to, to incentivize things differently, which we now see is fairly normal in football. But, you know, it's, you're, you're incentivized both off of your, your base pay, but your appearances, and then also off of, you know, how successful the team is. And in some cases, Brentford also incentivizing off of like set piece goals uh, scored and against, which is, you know, I think still fairly unique across the Venom clubs, but maybe, maybe that's changing in football too. Um, I think I have one more story that, that was quite interesting about Brentford before we move on to the Tuchel stuff, and then you can ask any questions also in the in the meantime. Because I said, James, you know, I don't know everything. These are these are sort of my silly old stories. I felt quite emotional when they went up, and I didn't expect that because like I've been gone for a long time, but I think a lot of my professional uh, respect comes from my my period there, and and Statsbomb wouldn't necessarily exist if I hadn't done all of this work and then talked about it later. Uh, or talked about it ahead of time, like when we were looking at scouting young players on Stats Bomb before I got hired by Brentford. And you know, I, I think we were we were quite successful, and we've continued to be successful at doing this stuff. But it's you know, it's not guaranteed success. Like these are probabilities, and, and shit goes weird. Um, but it, I was also like really happy for the the people that you know were at the club, and it was a little bittersweet because like Rob Rowan wasn't there, and um, yeah, like that was really weird because you know Rob was. Rob came in with us effectively, and uh, yeah, he was a, initially a scout, and he, he kind of moved his way up. Um, so anyway, two two quick stories before we disappear, and one of these is tied to Tuchel. Um, so early on in, in Tuchel's career at Mainz, uh, he started having the Spiel Verlagerung guys do tactical reports, and the main person I think leading that was Rene Marich. Rene Marich was also one of our first scouts that we hired um, at, at Brentford. While he was yeah, still at university, like we had him watching, you know, I think like five players a week or something like that. And he was producing reports for us. Like obviously now he's uh, he's been in the Champions League as assistant coach at, at Gladbach. And I think he's moving to Dortmund, but I, I haven't sort of found out if he's going to Marco Rosa or not. Um, but yeah, so so Rene Merritt's kind of behind the scenes ended up having, touching on both us and the, the Champions League winner uh, coach in, in different ways. And then the other one is is Thomas Frank. So Thomas Frank, um, I think he was at Bromby originally, and there was like a weird owner falling out. When we came out, or when I came out and started Statsbomb as a company, uh, one of our early consulting projects was to, to do a head coach search for uh, uh, an MLS club. And uh, he was on the list for that club to hire uh, I think even before he went as, as an assistant to, to Brentford, uh, alongside Graham Potter and, and a bunch of others, uh, you know, sort of MLS level that, that could be very successful. Uh, so so we, we, we tried to suggest to someone to hire Thomas before he went to Brentford. And then um, while he was still an assistant coach back when Dean was, uh, before Dean went to Aston Villa, uh, we had done some stuff with, with Barnsley's ownership group, um, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. And, uh, and, um, yeah, I, I feel bad for so JP Krein behind the scenes is is probably the main person that I've talked to over time. Love JP. He's he's fantastic. He's the son of the the former owner and and super bright. And my hope, if he's listening, is that he'll speak at our conference. Um, and then there's some other guy that's much more famous that we're not supposed to talk about, uh, but he's probably listening to this podcast. So if you're out there, hey. Um, but yeah, so we tried to hire Thomas to to come to Barnsley um, back when they were kind of doing their restructuring. And, uh, and he's like, you know, I thought about it. I think I'm going to stick around here. And then our Barnsley gig didn't last that long either. So um, they ended up hiring uh, Stendhal, who I, I think, or Struber, uh, who, anyway, all of these guys have done pretty well and, and gone. Another team that's had a lot of success. In, yeah, no, it's interesting, actually. I was, as you've been talking, I've been kind of like pondering things. And, and like Barnsley's run to the playoffs this season 
it's not a direct equivalence, but it's a bit like Brentford in the playoffs those years ago. You kind of not you kind you, this it's great. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna say no to it. But it's is it is it that little bit early? Um, and you know, we've seen some a team like Huddersfield or something when they came up into the Premier League and survived in the Premier League. Um, you know, it was like were were they kind of set up in a way that meant that they you know could persist at that level? And that's the thing. You you look at Brentford and you think like yeah, they they probably are as well as well set as any team could be that hasn't been in the Premier League in recent years to actually you know come up and you know stabilize don't get me wrong the risk of them going going down is still extremely high as it is for any team that comes up but you know they they've got a reasonably decent platform to go from and and that's the thing with some sort of team like Barnsley who've overachieved a season but had a fantastic season but yeah you know maybe it's a case of like um you know working through a few more cycles before you get to a stage where it's like actually we are you know like a, a kind of a, a very a strong and consistent championship team and that will give us a chance to uh, persist if we go up because and this is the thing when you when you're talking about teams that aren't you know backed by you know huge transfers and just literally going out there and buying much better players for you know large fees then you've got to be creative and you've got to think about style and um you know the edges that you can kind of uh, eke out and how can you actually exploit that and get to a stage where you you can reap the rewards but also you know consistently reap the rewards and that, you know, cause that's the, the the name of the game go up you know, you go up and stay up if you can yeah but the, <laughs> exactly. the, the premier league is so competitive now like team big teams get chucked out of there almost every single year i think yeah. so it's, it's not often that teams go up uh from the championship and they've got like you know 90 million worth of value in their front line like if you look at like a front three or or even like the fourth fourth you know like brentford have had that for a couple of years and they sold ben, ben rama and they sold ollie watkins and as you said they didn't suffer and and ivan tony scored a ton of goals and that's awesome but ivan tony was the beneficiary of of some great you know sort of wide player and midfield player um and, and also like penalties that were won not necessarily by by ivan uh so yeah it's it's really quite impressive um the 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 Barnsley stuff. So uh, you know, behind the scenes story, I'm, I'm going to make JP feel awkward. But I talked to JP pretty regularly, and a couple of years ago, when they came back up out of League One, I was like, "All right, JP, what, what do you what are you hoping for?" He's like, "I will accept 21st place. <laughs> like that, that's that's all that I want. I just want to stay in the championship." And obviously, that was like the really weird championship year. Actually, every year is a weird championship year, but even more weird than usual. And they did manage to to sort of eke out staying up. And what he told me at the beginning of that season is like, "If we get to stay up i think we're actually going to be pretty good because we've got a bunch of young players that we're really excited by but they're they're too early and they're a little raw if we get another year i think that they'll mature into something that that's pretty impressive and and you know i'm excited to see what happens that's exactly what happened this year despite the fact that they had to change coach mid-season now that doesn't mean that those players are necessarily playing the most exciting style of football <laughs> which people have complained about barnes's no, style of play all year <laughs> that's yeah that's an interesting point actually and and it bugs me because like Football's football's a multifaceted uh, sport. There isn't one one way to play the game, and there isn't one way to succeed. And there isn't, you know, what's pretty and what's unpretty to 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 anyone's eyes. You know, can be quite varied. And of course, British football's got a, a long heritage for, you know, kind of like direct and physical play. So I, I've got no qualms at all with, um, you know, with teams teams trying different methods to, to get the most out of what they can do. And this is it. We've seen we've seen Barnsley, a team that presses like um, it's extremely heavily and they've consistently hired coaches to, to get that out of their, their group. And they've been successful out off the back of it. So, uh, you know, let's, let's, you know, I, you do see critiques about the place, about, you know, oh, this is hard to watch or whatever. And so, well, you know, the either beholder is it's more than one way to skin a cat so to speak well i think that's also like literally the case i don't think brentford play the style of play that you know we would ideally choose and and you know part of the learning experience at brentford was that you know your coaches aren't necessarily going to be able to to do all the things that you want them to do um and brentford still don't score set pieces like i think that they should uh and that's not my fault <laughs> um, but uh you know they they do other things really well and and the defensive side of the ball was was one of the more important things and something that i i harped on um in seasons after i was gone um just you know like hey this isn't going to get them up because they don't play good enough defense it's it's good for being able to sell elite attackers at, at high values but 
yeah, that, that didn't work out for them until the last two seasons when they've been excellent. Barnsley play a different style. And, and they, again, play part of the style that we might choose, but not all of it. And they play with a different set of players and, and similar, very similar constraints about who they can, they can recruit. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, that I think that these, it, it shows that even if you've got kind of a, you know, a stats-based or data-based DNA inside of your club, uh, that doesn't mean that you're locked into one particular way of playing or one particular you know, type of players. It's just, you know, partly being different is, is useful for you as well. I've said it a million times, but just accountability along the way. Like, why are you making the decisions that you're making? And, like, you know, create a lineage behind that. And, it, you know, when it leans back over multiple seasons, and it's like, right, I know, you know, your, your Brentford stories are uh, really describe this because you land, you land, any anyone lands at a club at a moment in time. And it's like, right, what's in front of me? Who are these players? What's the strengths? What the weaknesses are? And you can't just, like, shake that out overnight. You know, everyone's, everyone wants their club to rebuild when they've been unsuccessful. And, oh, we're going to do a rebuild. Like, there's a lot of work and thought and consideration that goes into doing that and getting it right. And it isn't going to happen for any club overnight or within one transfer window or two transfer windows and such. So, yeah, when, you, when you've got a lineage that you can actually look back and say, like, right, okay, four or five years ago, we, or, you know, however many years ago, we decided to be accountable for what the decisions that we're making, the, the player recruitment and style of play and, you know, manager recruitment, all these things. And we know why we've made these decisions. Some of them work, some of them haven't worked, but we can actually account for them. I think that's just such a huge thing that is, is missed multiple times across football that's so, you know, so innately reactive to, you know, recent events and what happens, <clears throat> what happens and, you know, firing managers changing styles you know all this kind of stuff yeah and there's fine edges there too you know like you you can you can do as much work as you want to but that doesn't mean that the player's going to succeed and sometimes players like hate playing football you know sometimes they they look like they're amazing early on and they decide that they hate it but that's how they get paid a lot of money and like that has definitely happened with names that you know <laughs> names that everybody in england knows um you're like oh yeah I, I just hate playing football and you know in many cases that's why you see their careers end earlier uh or you know that talent sort of peters out the the hard one is just when guys get like really significant injuries not everybody recovers well from those and you have no control over it and you know like the injury to bieland happened because the turf was mislaid at at, at griffin park and you could see it cutting up and i mean i don't know 100 percent that this was the cause but it, it was very problematic and then they they could not play there for a while while everyone relayed the turf there uh so yeah I mean, these are like really dumb weird things that that happen but no control of anybody inside of the club it's just well shit happens in football and you've got to roll with the punches right about five minutes ago i missed a brilliant segue and i had it in mind Ooh. Just, uh, segue <laughs> teams teams that change their manager mid-season are there any other teams that change their manager <laughs> mid-season chelsea did took Ding. great success um yeah so this you know, you wanted to, to you, know, you mentioned him briefly before about uh, about tuchel but yeah it's, it's really quite interesting what he's done at chelsea and obviously King of the world, European champions, job done. Retire off into the sunset if he wants to, which is, which is really quite interesting because obviously you know the league will always be the league, and um, I think che you can you can make a very decent case that Chelsea should uh, be better. They shouldn't be eking out fourth place uh, like the, at the end of next season. But yeah, I was look, I was looking back over. Um, over his numbers, and I'll, I'll just I'll just quickly describe them, and then you can you can jump in with uh, any stories you want. But it's really interesting. Like this this season uh, under Tuchel, like the, their defense has just been Chelsea's defense has been outstanding. Literally about half a goal per expected goal per game they gave up under him. And it's interesting because we got the numbers. Uh, what was it? Yeah, fifteen shots to seven, one point uh, five to zero point five kind of expected goals. So basically, they they're creating plus one expected goals. Now, uh, I looked at the, the Champions League. Seven games. Uh, uh, seven games. I think he was in charge of against uh, Real City, Porto, and Atletico. So you know, a little bit stronger level of play than uh, you know just just Premier League and the you know half a season he had there. Similar story, 1.5 expected goals, 4.5 expected goals against, plus one. But different different uh, uh, thing there is the shots, the 10.5 shots to 8.5, whereas it's 15 to 7 in Premier League. So the 
the the thing that was going going on here, they they gave up nothing in the Champions League. The, I think the highest expected goal shot they gave up in Champions League was 0.29 in across seven games against all of the teams. Against super elite talent. Yeah, which is absolutely insane. So, but the the dynamic that we, we why how are we get into these numbers? What's what's powering it? And uh, for both both sides of this, you've got extremely better expected goals per shot. So shot quality on the front end, really good. Uh, shot quality on the defensive end, really good as well. And like, you know, out, notably good. Like in the league, uh, 0.07 expected goals per shot. In the Champions League, 0.06 expected goals per shot. Now, very few teams get to this kind of this kind of level. And then you go, and you, go and you rewind back to PSG and he's got better numbers there. Now that's no surprise. It's PSG. They're really strong. They've got all the talent in the world. But it skews towards the attack. Um, but then you go back to Dortmund, all the way back to sixteen, seventeen. I looked at, and then you know, let's remember where I started. Uh, in the Premier League, they were plus one expected goals. Now, if Dortmund in sixteen, seventeen, they were plus one for expected goals per ninety minutes played, fifteen shots per nine, a, a significant advantage of expected goals for, and actually it was average expected goals against, but their attack was really hot. So there's differences here. Like the, the defensive focus has really come through at Chelsea. Um, for some some reason, it's it's interesting because it doesn't quite come through before. But essentially, if you're always if you're always putting up an one expected goals expected goal per game more than your your opponent, you're in good shape and you're a good team. And that it's just it's just consistent. And the the expected goals per shot, the differential between we create much better shots than our opponents. And again, these are good teams, so you know you would expect that. But the good teams don't don't just you know, play well and have lovely statistical profiles out of nowhere. You've got to actually create it, and um, you know, Pep's done that, and we we, we see really exceptional numbers for them as well uh, for Man City. But yeah, really interesting that 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 thread just goes all the way through Tuchel, and yeah, I mean, he's well, Chelsea could barely ask for any more than what he's done, really. Yeah, so he came in early, and I think what I said was I I expected him to solidify the defense because Chelsea had some problems there. And I wasn't sure that he would be able to, to sort of start to adjust the attack because it takes more time, more training time. Uh, this season in particular was horrible for training time. But one of the things about Thomas Tuchel is that, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast many times, the, the best coaches are often the ones that are lifetime learners. They're the ones that are open to external ideas, can sort of process those, filter those, and figure out which ones are more valuable to them and, and often get them down to the training pitch. So <clears throat> Tuchel had what, you know, we basically call it gap year. Uh, I think he wanted to leave Mainz, but Mainz, he had like one year left on his contract or something like that, and they forced him to sit out a year. And during that gap year, he went around and talked to a lot of different people. And so there's a couple stories around that period of time. I know, <clears throat> you know, partly because I, I have friends behind the scenes who, who are German, um, and, and also because Matt and, and Tuchel met up and they hit it off. And uh, and they, they hit it off around like basketball. Tuchel, I think, was quite, quite interested in the NBA. Uh, and just around, you know, talking about football and concepts and, and stuff like that. And this is, you know, before Dortmund. So so quite interesting. So um, I, I also know that I think Crystal Palace at one point around then were doing uh, a head coach search. And they, they did like a, a big sort of, you know, real kind of uh, profile search for, for a guy. And Tuchel made it onto uh, one of the shortlists. And, and some of the people were extremely impressed by him. So this is kind of like the sliding doors type stuff where like Crystal Palace and Thomas Tuchel, you know, former Champions League finalist and winner Thomas Tuchel <laughs> were at one point discussing uh, a job vacancy. Um, so that was that was one interesting one. Um, you know, and, and Tuchel, I think one of the things that, that Matt talked about uh, back then was you know expected goals and creating better chances and i think that that tuchel kind of really figured out how to generate a better attack during his time at dortmund i don't think that you know he had the same coaching ideas at Mainz as, as he did in the attack at dortmund and obviously he had better talent um but what you saw was you know abameyang was moved central and abameyang became this enormous chance monster. He like his average chance quality was like 0.25, which is you know at the very edge of, of all center forwards, um, and that's one reason why he was able to, to score so many. But obviously, like that's not on Aubameyang. It's mostly on the creative ways that he's figuring out how to open up that that final third in the box. Um, and it is partly on Aubameyang's pace, but nevertheless, like all of these things kind of come together. Uh, so yeah, I, but I think that <clears throat> one of the changes that happened when he went to uh, PSG was that the emphasis became on the Champions League. 
And so I think a lot of his emphasis was on how do we play in a way where we can get regular goals and we're lucky enough to have Neymar and Mbappe just scoring out of their ears whenever they want to, to some extent, they're so hard to contain. Uh, and that's you know also true for Di Maria, et cetera. But like, how do we limit extremely uh, to, to like the lowest level possible opponent chances? Because it doesn't necessarily matter for them in the league, but it matters for them in the Champions League. And that's really what the emphasis became then. And then that translated over into, into Chelsea as well. That doesn't mean that he can't coach a great attack. We know that he can. It just means that where your emphasis is, 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 is it's like, this is the biggest shining beacon that says that, yeah, okay, we want to win the Champions League. This is the thing that we're, we care about. Let's not allow any, any defensive lapses ever. I hadn't looked at this, actually. But PSG in the Champions League last season, obviously they got to the final with him. And <laughs> their expected goals per shot before was 0.18 uh, per shot and the games was 0.08 wow that's, in, that's absolutely <laughs> insane difference I, mean, I guess they probably had some group games there when they loaded up but like that's off the charts like good like if you could if you could ever you know, like put that in a bottle it'd be worth what millions. Ha- what happens when you have a coach that wants to learn that is really bright and sort of pushes forward and that doesn't mean he's perfect like you know obviously he's probably pretty picky about a lot of stuff but what happens when you have that type of guy who then really starts to understand how football works and then is, is you know, sort of, you know, he's, he worked his way up through the ranks, is given access to better and better talent. And then, you know, this is sort of the outcome set. It's, it's damned impressive and it's not an accident. Yeah, that holds over the knockouts as well. There's only five games I think I've got listed for that. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's crazy. Another, another story from back in the day. Um, so actually two of them. Uh, we... Matt's group continued to talk to Dortmund when, when Tuchel went there. And um, Tuchel actually, even before then, was a huge fan of, of Werner at Stuttgart. And uh, such a big fan. He wanted to work with him so much that you know, he was considering going to Stuttgart. But uh, some of our, our friends apparently told him like, how bad Stuttgart was at the time. And that would be a disastrous career move. Don't do that. <laughs> I don't think that's true anymore. But like, at the time. Like, and then obviously Werner went on to, to much bigger things uh, and set with Red Bull. Uh, so, you know, a pretty impressive set of, of, you know, again, sliding doors there. And then we've talked about briefly the sliding door, but this is like another way to slot it in uh, because it comes back around. So we we were talking to, to Dortmund's recruitment group um, back then and we were kind of evaluating some of the options that they had and trying to say, hey, definitely like. Uh, you probably weren't going to do this, but don't sign Franco de Santo to, to Dortmund. That's a terrible idea. Uh, he had had a really good season at Schalke, and we're like, that's a lot of luck. Like his chance quality is is pretty low. He won't repeat this. He never did. Um, but they were looking at some some defensive midfielders. I think Gonzalo Castro might have been on that list, um, and he ended up being pretty good. But the one on there that is is just so funny is that this was the season before Leicester won the title. Uh, Angolo Conte was on there, <laughs> and and Angolo Conte was on Dortmund's list. <laughs> and you think of how many different things would that transfer have changed if he'd gone to Dortmund instead of to Leicester and then Chelsea and then still at Chelsea when Tuchel came back around. Yeah, he just had a year at Dortmund and gone straight to Chelsea. <laughs> nothing much. No, that doesn't change history. There's nothing. There's nothing in the middle of that that would be different. That's I, fine. I, I firmly believe that Angolo Conte <laughs> could could drive Dortmund to winning a, a league title over over Bayern by himself. <laughs> like the, at, at this point, there's nothing that that small, lovely man cannot do. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, yeah, I. I it's interesting because the Champions League final, I thought it was an evenly poised game. Uh, but everyone, everyone took the result and was like, yes, Conte! There's that guy that we know and love. He was the best player and went from that, which is very narrative-driven. We, we, we so see. rarely get to give credit to like the defensive players though that i i don't feel that bad about it right like you know you're you're like complaining about something do you, do you, do you want another hour on ruben diaz's player yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've got all of these all of these little little uh james, little has, been, james has been storing up grumpiness like th- <laughs> things that have been stuck in his craw for the entire season he's just gonna lay them all out <laughs> it's, yeah I, I i just can't this is just I can't help it. I just spot things and it's just like, these things have to be noted at least. And if that probably is a tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you be, just, just, you know, just, let's be creative about how we think about things. Let's not just roll along with the, with the narratives. Anyway, that doesn't matter. That's, that's for another time. Next year's podcast, maybe. Have, have, we, have we covered everything that we wanted to cover? 
Uh, yeah. Have I said anything that's going to get me in trouble? Probably. Oh, damn it. Um, yeah, no, I, so I think that's good. Um, look look for the team or teams at Euros that are doing weird stuff on set pieces. Hopefully there are, are one or multiples. Um, I think that that's really changing and uh, not to toot our own horn, but making football weird off of set pieces is certainly something we push for a while. Yeah, that, that's that's quite interesting, interesting because we've got this, um, you know, the Euros obviously got delayed a year. And I think, you know, even, even a casual like interested kind of um, just national coach may have watched England's success at uh, the World Cup and thought, oh, a bit of set pieces, eh? That that helped them a lot. So you know, we we've we've got some 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 connections around the place, but it'd be interesting to see what else comes out as well. You know, if you've got like half the teams all all trying tricksy stuff, that could be absolutely wild. But I'm really yeah, looking forward to it, uh, especially little teams. Yeah, I've I've missed. You know, I missed the summer tournaments. Obviously, it was delayed. Uh, it's always a fun time to, to watch these games. Um, speaking of set pieces, though, I actually do have a plug. Uh, at basically, the start of July roundabout, um, we our set pieces course is going to open up. It's online. It's available on demand. Uh, it's only going to be open for a month, and then it's going to shut back down again. So if you've been waiting, uh, you know, don't miss it because like I'm not opening it back up again, <laughs> and and I'm the person the the grumpy old bastard that that gets to control access to this one. Um, so yeah, that'll that'll be there uh, in July if you've been waiting for it. Um, our courses are always around. Uh, we've got the introduction course uh, to analytics that you know seems to get you know, a few people every week, if not tens of people every week that that take it. Um, we also have the the recruitment course that I think James did an amazing job on. And then our, uh, our buddy and employee, Carl uh, Carpenter, is working on a video analysis course that hopefully will, will premiere before the end of the summer. So we're trying to give you like all the building blocks you need to potentially you know, become a team analyst. Uh, but I will say that if you really want to be employable by a team at some point, you need to bust ass on your, your programming skills because that is going to be the most in-demand uh, thing for you know, the football world in the future. It's only going one way, Ted. It's only going one way. It is. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, apologies. <laughs> and on that note, apologizing. <laughs> it's very English. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, we miss doing this podcast, but as we said, the business doesn't allow us to do so. It gets awkward. So we just pop up occasionally to tell old stories and to congratulate old friends. Take care. Enjoy your summer and uh, be safe. Bye. Bye.